And we are live with our 151st episode of Absolute Absic. I'm Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Joined by my co-host, <laughs> Ken Johnson, at CK Tricky on Twitter. Ken, say hi. Whoops. Hi. Oops. Yeah. So, so apparently Ken started it. <laughs> Went live and then promptly left StreamYard. So that was fun. Um, yeah, I hit a hotkey too quick. Sorry about that. Nope, you're fine. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, yeah, we've been out, off for a couple of weeks, weeks because of life and business and actually other training courses that I, I think I've been the main instigator on that with, uh, yeah, Q4, right? Um being a consultant in Q4. And I know we've bemoaned that in the past, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. But uh, suffice to say, I'm pretty stressed out and I'm looking forward to, you know, about a, four weeks from now when everything calms down and we can go, you know, go uh, on holiday break. So, um, yeah, Ken, I mean, what's new with you, brother? Yeah, so uh, you can see I'm in a different office. Um, so I finally... Uh, well, I don't think we've, have we done a podcast episode since I moved? I think we might have, but I wasn't yeah, set up. Yeah, you weren't so. completely set up, but yeah, we, we did one, but yep. Finally getting set up. So a couple things to, to talk about, I, I, I think. Um, so yeah, one thing is we are both, Seth and I are doing talks at DevSecCon. Uh, I think both of ours are on Thursday, I want to say. Yeah. Is yours yep. on Thursday? Yeah. Yeah, mine's on Thursday. So. Yeah, we'll we'll post the 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 uh, link there. But yeah, so we're there's going to be a lot of speakers. It's um, an interesting concept. It's a very short um, window of time to do things. So uh, I don't know about you, Seth, but my talk is 15 minutes. I think most of them are around 15 minutes long. So I think it's neat because you kind of have to get right to the point. Um, and I like that. I, I like that idea of just getting right to the point getting as much out of that, being as impactful as possible and moving on. I don't think you always need a 45-minute talk, so I'm actually really looking forward uh, to that. The other thing is um, Seth and I are planning on doing a bit more of um, – we're going to gauge interest to see if people like this, but we'd like to do some live streaming of code reviews. So we'll take input <laughs> live from folks. We'll say, hey, send, send us your wackiest like open source you know, so we can access it anyways. Send, it, send us the repo location. We'll download the code. We'll do a live uh, code review with everyone so you could see like, and again, like we were thinking we, we might even just do wacky stuff that is hard to review just so you could see. Um, yeah. Like see it's like Watch us struggle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It might be really fun. It might not, but we want to try it. So it'll be like a nighttime thing where we're, uh, you know, we're, we're going to give it a shot. So stay tuned for those details uh, when we, do our first live streaming of that. So um, yeah, that's I yeah. think the only two things I was going to mention. Yeah. We'll post about that in Slack and on Twitter once we kind of know the details. Um, and I, but I, I think we will solicit some feedback for projects that people are interested in. I mean, I know you and I have those ones that we review in the course um, or at least we, you know, we recommend that people review, right. Whether that's rails or, you know, a Node.js Express app or whatever, right? But we may pull just something crazy out of our hat and go at it because that seems to be what gets thrown at us on a daily basis, right? Random stuff is like pretty much 
our bread and butter. I feel like that's, you know, gotten used to being thrown the random stuff. Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, otherwise, like I know conferences are getting back into play. Um, we're, you know, I, we've been talking to the guys at Colonel con, uh, you know, so we'll probably submit for training there in a, in a, and that's, I can't remember though. That's like March, April timeframe, right? Like most of the, most of the in-person conferences seem to be pushed that direction. Uh, I will be at B-side Salt Lake city uh, in December in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're, you know, we'll, yeah. There's I, rumors I we might, we might go to that, that place you've never, uh, never been in Hawaii. There's rumors Fake of, news. Uh, yeah. of a 2022 <laughs> return. We'll see. Uh, there's rumblings. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is rumblings, but yeah, as soon as that's on the calendar, I will uh, set aside the time to sit in my office and pretend like pretend like I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like you're actually doing stuff. Yeah, on, a, on an island. Yeah, probably not the most productive. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, no. So that 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 could be very very interesting. So I, I will. I wonder if you know 2022 if things don't uh, start coming back a little bit. You know, um, that would be really awesome. I'm tired of virtual conferences as much as they've done a great job. People have done a great job of keeping us going through the, all of this. I think uh, definitely want to see your faces again. So yeah. In yep. Well, and that was it. Like I, um, I mean, one of these trainings I did the last couple of weeks, I mean, it was, it was a private training for a company, right. But one of them was in person. That's the first in-person training that we've given nice. since, I think it was the week before quarantine hit, right? Like I was on site with a company and we were doing training and like being in person. And then the next day we did a remote training. I think I told you this, Ken, and I'm like, ugh, the, the, you did just, just the difference between the two and having people in course and being able to have those discussions and dive deep into topics that they're interested in. Like it energizes us as trainers, as well as like attendees, everybody that comes around, comes away with a lot more. And so just seeing that difference so close back to back, I was, uh, yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I, I do enjoy training, just not like the remote stuff isn't the same. That's, yeah. It, no, I, I do. I do. I enjoy the, the, the process. I enjoy the engagement. I enjoy the questions. I think the, the time between, you know, where you're taking breaks when you're in person where people, some people will go get some coffee or water or whatever, but then there'll be people that stick around and they ask questions. They, they want to go in more into depth on things. And I feel like there's, there's more space for that, more opportunity for that when you're in person. Um, so, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's the hallway con stuff, right? Like I, I right. think we've discounted that. I, I know that's why we've always enjoyed going to conferences, catching up, like networking with people, right? That's most of the reason that, that I think I've gone to conferences in, the, in recent years, right? Yeah, it's to speak. It's great, you know, to to get your get our name out there and do all this other stuff. But being able to meet people and and learn the problems that they're having, right? No one, I, I mean, most of the live well, yeah, most of the remote conferences, it's very hard to share that sort of feedback from attendees to speakers. Um, mm. It goes, it's a lot of one way, right? Like, I feel like I'm just speaking at a camera and I'm speaking to people and I don't get that interaction on what is actually happening on the ground, right? Uh, you may well, get one or two people. Yeah, certainly. What? No, I didn't, uh, no, I'm sorry. I just meant to say like, there's certainly... Uh... 
a difference between speaking at someone and speaking with someone for sure. Yep. And you yeah. see the difference. Yeah. 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 So I, I mean, we probably don't have to rant on it too much, but it was just a very stark difference doing it back to back like I did last week. And, you know, just made me excited that we would actually get it back on the circuit and go see people again and, you know, have, have normal interactions. I don't know if they're normal anymore because we're all awkward after so long being alone. All right. So, so awkward. Yeah. So awkward. I yes. Might be overly enthusiastic and, uh, draw people away actually me and say yeah, yeah. Like, oh, i'm so glad to see you it's crazy and weird stay away creepy make, make eye contact yeah. a little too long uh, you know stuff like that i know <laughs> i forgot social cues <laughs> no. oh, well, well in any yeah. case i think we're gonna get back to it soon and i'm yeah like definitely looking forward to uh seeing people but in the meantime i think it could be an interesting prospect to do some live co um code review sessions and i think that that could be a little bit more interactive and a way to bridge the gap between the two so we'll see it's an experiment we'll try it and see if people enjoy it i think it could be fun to watch me clumsily screw up things or you proficiently uh what, what, going whatever. through the code base <laughs> <laughs> i'll be fumbling I, I, yeah You'll be smooth as butter <laughs> whatever right but I, yeah, I do do, I do a lot of code, right? Like, yeah, but you do as well. So it's, uh, yeah. I, no, I do I, spreadsheets now, man. Oh, that's right. You're a manager. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're now a Mr. upper manager. level. Yeah. You're a high no, level talent now. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, still decent. I'm, I still get some code review in here and there, just not as much, but yeah. Um, yeah. Whatever, man. Whatever. Have you seen any cool new... I was going to ask you, since you've been doing uh, the Q4 rush, have you seen any cool new things like technology-wise, anything new that kind of did baffle you or it took you... Not baffled you. That's the wrong word. But took took a, you know, took a little bit of extra time to get your your brain around or wrap your mind around. Yeah. I, actually, actually, there is something that I wanted to share, and I'm bringing it up here really quick. I... I do need to probably redact a little bit. Um, hold on. It's what is legal agreement stuff anyways? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Amongst the internet friends. <laughs> um, let me see. Do, do, do. Uh, crap. I'm sure know you trust everyone on, on the internet. Yeah. Ugh. Well, here, I'm, I'm going to screenshot it and then I'll share it because that, that seems to be the easiest way. Then it won't leak out any names or anything like that. That's a good Let's idea. See, where am I at? Where am I at? Okay. Yeah, that's that, that's what I'm going to do. That, that I think that'll be the easiest thing, right? Because um, otherwise it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is okay. So this is a snippet of code, right? Um, like, come here. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm struggling today. Apparently, Ken. That's just how it, every day is a struggle goes. these days. Yeah. It's Q4. This is what happens if you're in the consulting world. It's a tough one, especially if you're Seth and you own your own consultancy. I imagine it's ten times worse than just doing the technical work. Yep. Okay. All right. So you should be seeing my screen here, right? 
um, or you should mm -hmm. be seeing a screenshot. This was a this this was weird, and it was actually kind of fun, right? Because <laughs> I I don't know how much of a security issue this is. There's a couple of things here, and I'm running into this more and more with the assessments that I do, and even with the code reviews that I do on a daily basis, right? This is just TypeScript. This is an authenticate function. Um, that was written. I mean, it's a custom authenticate function, uh, but th there's a couple of security issues all wrapped within like this 10 lines of code. And, and I'm wondering what stands out to you, Ken, when you start to look at it. And I did share this previously in the absolute AppSec Slack channel, or at least a snippet of it. Uh, but there was a there was a couple things that I wanted to compare here and mm. go over. I actually didn't see, um, I didn't actually see this in the, I saw that you'd posted something, um, but I honestly, uh, you know, moving and getting stuff set up anyways. Um, yeah, I guess like, okay, let me look over this then. Um, so I know, I've, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Like this That's is fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So authenticate is the function they're defining. Um, it's the takes an uh, email string password and a Boolean of is to FA promise so it's going to return uh okay so it's going to return something uh okay i see there's two different returns there's a null and a session so its goal is to return either a session and if it doesn't have a session then uh null it's going to take so it's creating a connection um to a database get repository i don't know the person object there is that like just a person model it's just creating a person model query it sounds like yep yep um and then it's doing aware with what the hell is I I like? I like. Yay! You sn you jump right on it. What does I like? Yeah, what? Because that sounds like it'll roughly match an email address, not like an exact match on an email address. Um, yes. Just by ding, first ding, glance. Ding. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? That that and is that that's the initial issue that I saw with this, right? And I, like, if you go through our process uh, when we're doing. Um, initial analysis of authorization functions, right, Ken? I got to yeah. this and I have like, honestly, in my notes, I've got like, this looks weird. Why are we using <laughs> yeah. I like, right? And then I moved on right. and then I came back to it. And we actually have a running instance of this app that we were testing against. But I like is a Postgres function that does a fuzzy match. So if you put a percent or a wildcard character in that string that's being passed in, it will match the first email that ha that has that you know that matches that percent sign. Ah. So when the password is provided in this case, right? Like my account is you know Seth at RedpointSecurity.com or Seth at Absolute AppSec. If I just do Seth percent sign, it will match the first Seth that's in there and then compare passwords to it, right? Ah, um, yeah. So it, it, it was weird because I'm trying to decide if that's really a security issue or not. It doesn't seem great. If it's part of an authentication, I would want a strict match. So for me, yeah. it's just as a smell. And yeah. also another thing too is that I don't like, the other thing, and this is again, probably more of a smell is I don't like the fact that they have the, the, uh, the check for the person object and doing the bcrypt constant time comparison check um, all in the same uh, conditional statement i would probably say like hey uh i would probably do the, the object check first and return null if it doesn't exist and then second i would have the the time comparison it's not a big deal but i do think like 
in just thinking about it, you know, there might be a, it probably would never be noticeable. None of this likely makes any difference, but there is technically, you know, uh, a situation here where if the, like you, you would have a time variation is what I'm trying to say. So like, let's say you for enumeration. So the email doesn't basically, if the email doesn't return anything, uh, or if the email lookup there doesn't return anything, then, um, you, you would skip right to the, the t- constant time comparison. Whereas if the person existed, but then the password, you know, the password, you got you to take the compare sync out of it. Like compare sync is going to return a constant time period. So then you start thinking in the context of whether that person object exists or not. And then that would create some level of potentially, I guess, uh, variation. I don't know if it would, it, would, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be great to have those two in the same conditional statement, I think, as a smell. Um, it's no, not no. me doing the sanding, Derek. Sorry, uh, I'm not doing any handyman stuff right now. Uh, so, but I yeah, think that's background on me. Sorry, guys. Yeah, but I think, um, sorry, so session equals create session for person, person connection is 2FA, and also that's the another question here where does is 2FA even come into play? Because this doesn't seem to be taken into account to factor off at all. Um, maybe it's like a separate thing. Yeah, it's right? it's during that second, you know, the create session for person that what third or fourth line from the bottom where it's actually doing two FA if it's actually if it actually exists. But this it, so and that you you've keyed in on again the other problem that we saw with the B, the bcrypt compare sync because of the work factor there. Um, we did, again, this was against a running test and this, you know, user enumeration is basically in every app that we look at, right? Username or account enumeration. And this one actually succeeded. The timing comparison between a person existing and not existing was two to 300 milliseconds, the difference between the two. Um, Because of that line, the not person, not bcrypt compare sync, um, uh, and, okay. and, and, and I think it was mainly because we were looking at a dev instance that didn't have a lot going on. So right. like there wasn't any slowness, right. The TypeScript, And I, I mean, when there's only, you know, my 10 sessions that are hitting the app, uh, that there's, there's very little variation, right. From session to session or from request to request. And so that slowdown actually had an effect. Um, Interesting. But, yeah. Interesting. I would assume so. You know, I just don't, whenever you want a constant time comparison uh, to, to mask enumeration, you don't then couple it with another object lookup or some other, it just shouldn't be part of, in my opinion, another, some sort of other conditional, but you know, that's just one person's opinion. It just seems like a flawed way to do it. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is right. Like, so there's, there's quite a few things that I recommended to the company in this case, right? Mm -hmm. First thing was the, Hey, let's do an exact match on the email. There's no, there's no reason that you need a fuzzy match during authentication. Um, I I think back to, again, I date myself, but I think back to the days when there was more of a direct connection to LDAP um, Mm -hmm. and login systems. And that was something that we would always exploit. We would always do uh, star signs and other things when the, when it was passed directly back to LDAP because it allowed for some of the fuzzy match, um, right? Like I could spin through email addresses just based on first names um, and, you know, enumerate out that way, depending on how the response came back. 
um, in this case. But uh, so the fuzzy match was the first thing. The second thing was that we did a bcrypt of whatever password that they sent in to us, even if it wasn't, um, if the person object didn't exist, just to get rid of that um, time comparison. And then exactly what you're saying with, you know, moving the person check out of the line with the bcrypt comparison check, right? There was, so there's like, Two or well, three I think things there's a, recommended. Yeah. Yeah. A third thing would be logging. Like there's no logging whatsoever here done, right? Like I would probably want to log authentication failures and say, okay, there was no person object return. So who, what email address are they, they giving? Like whose account? And also like, again, this is one tiny snippet, but I don't see any logic for like uh, locking someone out, right? Mm -hmm. You see the compare sync, but you don't actually see any. So it's a very basic lookup if it, is, you know, if they find the person and the password, the passwords match, cool, then that's great. Um, otherwise, like, yeah, you're, uh, it's just, it doesn't, it's, it's like, then what, you know, is there a lockout mechanism? Is there any logging of this stuff going on? It's just sort of like a very basic function, you know, you're, you're yep. either in or you're out. There's no yep. other like detailed information. It's, it's uh, keeping a trace of or Anyways, just I, I could see like, so I guess there's four things. The first two we discussed, the logging, and then, uh, yeah, the fourth thing being something like um, where's the lockout? lockout. But again, that's just, yeah, so. Well, and yeah, just I, a reminder to people, don't tie the lockout value to the session. Don't do that because people can delete the session and then resubmit the, they can continually submit a username and password combo, removing that session each time or like not having it included in the intruder yeah, request yep. and uh, or automated request and yeah. Well, and that so don't that, tie it to a session. And exactly the lockout thing was also what one that came up right is the fact that if they are using the fuzzy match, who do you attach that lockout to? Right behind the scenes, is it to the email address that got matched? Is it to the IP? Yeah. Like there's there's so many other considerations that we that come into account when you start to do that that sort of a lookup especially right. in authentication or authorization routines that, uh, yeah. Anyway, it, which is it was, another good reason why you want to break those up. Right. It, Cause if it's not a person, then do these things like log, which email address were they trying? Like, why didn't that work? And, um, you know, if, if the email address exists and you've gotten past that conditional, then you do the second conditionals uh, block, which would be the compare sync. And then if that fails, then you say, okay, well, we know at this point we, there was a person, so they're clearly giving a valid account, but obviously the password's wrong, and that's where you can start to bake in your, your logic, which is another good argument for breaking those two chunks up, uh, the person and the comparison. So, yep. Yep. Yeah. Good arguments all around for refactoring this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, I, I mean... To be fair, right, the the developers on this probably, well, I, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know how experienced they are, if they've written authentication routines before. Um, in the past, it, you know, most of the time I run into these sorts of issues, it's because they're just um, slapdashing something together and it's, it's very feature focused. Hey, I need to be able to log in and compare passwords. So this is their first or second attempt at it. And they haven't necessarily considered all of the other factors that go into it, which is an argument for something like in rails for device or mm -hmm. authentication middleware that takes this. Yeah. 
I, I mean, honestly, yeah, like, I take because you because this is just off. Yeah, this is just authenticate. I mean, this is there's still forgot password. There's registration. There's account updates and all that stuff. Like you said, something like a device would. I mean, obviously, this is TypeScript, so it wouldn't be. Yeah, I don't. You know, obviously not device, but something yeah. similar akin to that would handle those things. And as, you're right, that's a good argument for using that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's not that developers can't secure it and they can't learn over time, but if they're trying to quickly prototype something and push it out, this is one of those places that it's it's worth spending the time getting to know some of that middleware that is actively developed, that has already gone through this sort of a code review process line by line to make sure that it is secure. So, yeah. Cool. See it, Larry. Yeah, there is something to be said for that which is it's good learning, but if you put that in prod, you're on your own. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, rolling your own crypto, devising your own authentication schemes. Yeah, I, I missed all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't actually see. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, I mean, um, those are always the recommendations that we make on the, you know, uh, crypto especially, right? Like, you know, you should be using OpenSSL or some of the other things there. But the um, authentication routines, I'm leaning more and more, more and more towards middleware for for these sorts of functions and for these reasons. Um, because I see mistakes done. I, I mean, it, it happens every single assessment. And I know, Ken, you know, the, the PRs that you guys do internally, I don't know how much authentication you get involved with nowadays, but every single report that I've written in the last year has had some sort of broken authentication uh, finding in it. Like I just don't, yeah, everyone fails is basically what I'm trying to say. We're doing it wrong and we're not making it easy for developers to do right. Yeah. And actually that problem's getting more complicated, which sort of blends into one of our topics for today, which is that, but like just staying on this point though, um, even though it is a pretty good segue is that, um, you know, it's, it's a weird situation too, because like you've got authentication and authorization decoupled from multiple services and this is becoming more and more frequent, but also on top of that, not only is the authentication authorization happening typically at some front end and then, you know, things are being accessed and you have to pass identity through, you have to make, first you have to make sure the person is who they say they are. And then you have to like, obviously then check their, their, what are they authorized to access? What's their access uh, level? But then also there's a third part to all of that, which is like data being um, sent with that information al- alongside that information and making sure that data, like a request is actually, uh, the same per system. This is something we're seeing a lot more of. I know we have an article we're going to talk about, but yeah, sticking on, on to your point though, authentication authorization, it gets even more tricky as you look at like decoupled microservice or even just service oriented architectures. Um, and then also not just that, but like the uh, proliferation probably is the right word of using Something, something like API gateways or something along those lines where the cloud, you know, you can define your routes, the cloud, you piece multiple services of a cloud together to sort of like build, think of like the, the API gateway or Lambda and then RDS and like many like AWS services I'm just pointing to. Um, yep. 
you know, where you're, you're piecing together a, and even Cognito for authentication, which is like a good idea. That's kind of cool that, you know, AWS gave that, but why did they do that? There's a reason for it. So to couple all these components together, you, you, you've got cloud providers that are making this easier to have this sort of like distributed architecture. So you've got your serverless concepts, you've got, um, anyways, you have like a more complex, all I'm trying to say is you have a more complex, more decoupled systems. And so I feel like that adds even more difficulty to the authentication and authorization implementations. And if you're trying to do that on your own, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, the, the, it, it's just the overall complexity. You're, you're right. And that's what I've keep, I, I keep going back to, um, we've got like assessments that we've done in the past, you know, three months where like the microservice architecture just ends up killing people. Right. Or it, it exposes critical vulnerabilities because, you know, one system behind the scenes has allows for insecure direct object reference because it's a lookup. It's meant to be protected, but you're proxying requests through the front end API gateway or whatever, like Nginx system that is there. And all of a sudden you've opened that, you know, insecure direct object reference up to the world and you're exposing your whole customer database, right? Like this is a very, very common problem. And that's, that's an authorization issue. It's an authentication issue, but uh, the more complex that things get, the more we're dependent on, or we should be dependent on something that's tried and true. But you want to jump into that first article then that you shared? Oh, yeah. No, and it's not even like this isn't even a huge deal. It's just it affected AWS. So I'll post it. I'll post it in here. Um, my computer's going slow on the Slack stuff, but uh, OK, I found it. Um, yeah, so this is just an eight, uh, HTTP header smuggling attack against the AWS API. It was just pretty much like what you would expect. Um, it was reported and fixed. And the proper, you know, things that we do these days with like bug bounties and reporting security bones and then patching them and, you know, giving, showing gratitude. Um, here's, I'm going to put it in Slack too. Um, so anyways, like overall, quickly fixed, rolled out amongst AWS. All in all, pretty non, uh, pretty much a non-event really, like in terms of being super serious. But uh, at the core of what this really is, it's it's just a uh, it's a header. It's it's the the what am I trying to say? It's the handling of the headers and how those get passed, how those headers get passed on from you know one system to another. In this case, there's a bit of caching uh, issue going on here. So um, the actually, let me share my screen so you can see that. I'm going to try and make this smaller because I'm on a big screen. Condense that down, share screen. And hopefully here in a second, you'll see it. Um, if I can figure out how to internet. Okay. Now it should be on the screen, hopefully. Cool. Yes, we can see it. Perfect. So yeah, this is a pretty basic test. You know, X my header is the 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 kind of the the normal one, X my header with a value of test. And they checked, changed X my header and added in, you know, a sec, a space and a second uh, piece to that header, then colon and the value of test. So not a big deal. Um, what it exposed, however, is that the front end servers uh, weren't passing um, 
uh, properly from the front end to the back end. So it was doing this uh, stripping of the header, uh, rewritten on the server. Um, and because of the ability to, to strip, re-render, and, and basically a tamper with, uh, it has like an IP restriction bypass um, for, I believe, authenticating in, right? So uh, pretty interesting in the sense that um, I guess that it existed, but more interesting, I think, uh, is that we are seeing an increase of things like this. So let me stop sharing for a second. So what I mean by that is, I, well, I say we, I mean, I know that uh, I've read plenty of articles and seen it discussed more widely. Um, James Kettle, we had on the podcast a few, uh, or maybe it was like a couple months ago or a month and a half ago, something like that. He discussed uh, request smuggling. Um, and so between caching and request smuggling issues and these, it's like this new sort of, I don't want to say new, but it kind of is. It's like a new class of things that we're coming across. And the reason is, is that we have, there is becoming this, and I've dealt, and, and why this is relevant to me is I dealt with an incident. Our team dealt with an incident um, a couple of weeks back, and I can't really talk to much of it now, but um, the root cause of it was, yeah, mismatch in expectations between what the front end and the, the back end systems are going to pluck out, right? So what I mean by that is the data that the front end is receiving, if the front end is doing some level of like, whether it be auth Z or auth N, right? Let's say it's doing authentication or authorization there. It's going to, the front end is going to like, okay, are, are these credentials or whatever you sent me as, as, are we good? Like, does it match up with what you're trying to do? And maybe like parsing out the interesting relevant bits of the request then passing it on to a backend and the backend uh, system making some assumptions. You did auth C, you did auth N, you've properly stripped and basically, I don't know what I'm trying to say, parsed, parsed and read through the data. And then when you repackaged and sent to me, my belief is that it's pristine data. It's it, all of these things. I'm making assumptions as the backend services. I'm making assumptions that certain things were done. If they were done improperly or incorrectly, or the data being passed to the backend is different from the what hit the front end, uh, we 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 end up having some issues. This is part of like something that I want to talk about at DevSecCon. Is that right? DevSecCon. Dev, uh, yeah. This is something I actually want to discuss. Is like how it's actually shaping. Um, our, our web security vulnerabilities and, and, and therefore the difficulty it's introducing in testing. Because I could, I could look through and do, a, the reason I'm saying all this is I could do a code review of a front end system and say, ah, that looks fine. It's doing these things. It looks good, right? I could do a code review independently of the front end on the back end systems or say maybe there's three microservices or just services in general that are behind this front end. I can independently do a review of all of those. If I do the reviews of these things completely independent, not considering one, uh, one or the other, it's weird. It could look perfect. It look could look it could look great. Um, maybe no obvious security issues, but there are security issues, and it's because the assumptions of what you're seeing on the back end may not resemble, even remotely resemble, the data that's being passed to it from the front end. There's this weird disconnect, and it's it's something that's been kind of in my head, it's like, how do we, how do we 
not decouple those reviews? How do we make sense and look at this holistically and together so that we can find, and I guess fuzzing is a big part of that. I'm starting to understand that I think code review alone is, is, is great, but I do think one of the faster ways to test, to test between uh, test where there, there might be issues between two different systems is through live runtime fuzzing. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No. And that, Anyways. I mean, that, that, that goes back to this argument that, um, well, yeah, when, when Stefan was on last, right, uh, Logico, when we were talking about fuzzing and kind of this expected map of what it, what a application accepts versus what you throw at it for security testing um, and where those edge cases lie, that's super hard to discover from a, uh, from a source code review, right? Like if we're looking at the code, yeah, we know that there's an integer that's coming in here, but what happens when it's a negative integer or a positive integer and it's not accounted for, um, especially when it goes outside the scope of, of the small piece of code you're looking at, right? Um, I, I mean, I know, I know I say it all the time, you know, that security, like penetration testers are really just QA testers that document poorly and have like a security bent, right? That's, um, but it's true that that, that, dynamic test is still needed and we should be considering those fuzz tests, a crucial part of our, you know, our security pipeline. Um, and I, I still don't see a lot of organizations that do that, especially smaller organizations, uh, larger ones will have a team that's dedicated to that, or they'll have a, uh, like a security QA team as opposed to the penetration test team. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm getting like down in the weeds on why that actually happens, but Ken, you're absolutely right. Like I don't, I don't think there's any other way to discover that without doing some sort of full integration fuzz test that that analyzes the data from source to sync, but really source to sync. Like it comes from the user, it goes through a web service X, Y, and Z, then it hits the database, um, as opposed to we're only looking at, at web service Y. And we assume that everything's trusted going in and that when we send it out, it's all clean, which is not always the case. No. And, you know, I can honestly say that we had, um, we had legitimately uh, really skilled. I mean, some of the most skilled in code review folks uh, I know looking at and knowing where the vulnerability for the the incident I'm thinking about anyways, um, I say incident, it's just, you know, someone reports something and you act on it. So I shouldn't say incident, it sounds more serious, but a report of a vulnerability, right? And so we we knew where the, roughly in the code base, where the vulnerability existed. And it's, even after, even knowing that it took, set, I mean, a team of, little pizza team or V team of people uh, most of the evening to even remotely understand like where this was happening. And that was that was an eye opener to me that that even knowing roughly where the vulnerability uh, was, it was difficult to track down in the source how what we knew was happening was happening. And I think that that's what I'm trying to say is like uh, you know especially with James uh, discussing his sort of framework that he uses and ties into Burp and you know he pl- take takes 15 minutes to sort of uh, or I think he said. Uh, 
yeah, it takes him some some short amount of time to put together his test, and then he runs it. And I think that runs for 50 minutes is what he said, something along those lines. But anyways, he has like this, this framework he can load his tests, his fuzzing tests into, and then it just goes and does that. And I, I see a lot of value with that because I think, yeah, I just, I think it's very hard if you're doing code review alone, even if you have both code bases, front end and back end, um, it can be very difficult. And to make this a less abstract and more abstract and more concrete, you know, you have to understand that I'm not saying to the, you, to, to this to you, Seth, I'm saying this to the, the listeners, you have to understand that the front end systems, like I said, they might be parsing out certain headers, um, which have impact, which have serious impact. It might even be how the, the pivotal way in which authorization occurs. It might be authentication. It might be some credentials that are inside of that header. And then there's possibly another header that gets slid in there and then bypasses your authentication. You know, so let's say you could double up on headers and format it in such, such a way where, you know, like one header is, uh, seems valid by the front end, but it's totally ignored and uh, looks at something completely different on the back end. I'm trying to make this concrete. I'm just making up an example. Um, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Um, so any, anyways, uh, I think that this is going to be more problematic, uh, but, <laughs> and it's interesting too, because, you know, before, like, when, when you and I would talk about web AppSec, what were we always, what were the two things always brought up? Uh, like XSS and SQL injection. Everybody knows XSS and everybody knows SQL injection. But look, yep. XSS is primarily protected at what layer now? Like at the browser, because the browser is listening to your CSP, which is being passed down from the server. And it's saying, well, okay, realistically, that's that's a browser protection. It has to actually like obey the rules of what your server is saying or it should, right? Um, I know that now the Dom Purify folks worked with, I think, was it Chrome or Firefox? I think it was one of the two browsers. The Dom Purify folks worked to build uh, protections in there at the browser, le- like not at a server level of sanitization or output encoding, but at a browser level. So things are, so it's interesting. And I, I think when we talk about SQL injection, we've talked a lot about how like ORMs and and these these data handling libraries are abstracting you away from having to write raw SQL unless it's like, you know, some, I mean, obviously there's cases around that where people need to be more performant or whatever. It's not foolproof, but I think those things are going away and they're being handled in ways that we maybe hadn't expected. Maybe the ORM I kind of get, but like the, the browser-based bits there, I, I, uh, protections I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have expected. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the threat landscape is absolutely changing in terms of the categories we're, lo- we're looking at. And now it's getting more complex in different ways where it's a lot of this like distributed systems causing these mismatches. Well, and that's, I, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that in the recent OWASP top 10 that um, server-side request forgery got called out by industry people as the up and comer, right? You look at the OWASP top 10 right now, and most of the most of the issues that are identified in there are broad sections of vulnerability or broad categories of vulnerabilities, right? So you've got broken authentication or whatever they're calling it, um, broken authorization. It encompasses multiple different classes of vulnerability within that, you know, that one category. Whereas, you know, number 10 is this server-side request forgery, a vulnerability in and of itself. But I, I really feel like that's the reason is we've had so much focus on the server requests that are being made and where it goes after we send it, right? So things like request smuggling, 
hey, we send the we send data to the system that we can interact with as a user or as an attacker, and then it goes out and it's calling other things behind the scenes. What does it attach? What does it call? What does it do? And all these all these large breaches and large exploits that are coming out seem to be sitting at that layer right now. I, I mean, honestly, when was the last time? Well, I, I have my own arguments about cross-site scripting, but when was the last time you heard about a, you know, a, a huge cross-site scripting exploit? Yeah, I haven't. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, that's just it, right? <laughs> like, okay. Tweet deck, right? Like that was the last big one that how many years ago was that, that it actually occurred? Um, I mean, I know that Google's so long ago that I forgot TweetDeck is still a thing. It's a thing, yeah, exactly, exact that, and and that's my point, right? Like, um, at some point, I want to do a talk on you know where have all the XSS gone because I, I think we, we classify and spend so much money on this, and it's never been a huge risk, or the severity of those attacks have been very much kind of denial of service attacks versus actual exploitation but that that's a whole nother discussion right um yeah that gets yeah. down into some 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 possibly some religious uh, <laughs> yeah. uh debates there <laughs> level debates i mean i guess yes. the thing that's interesting about all this and the reason uh, you know it it's funny because we used to say code review was the quickest way to find vulnerabilities and i think um that's changing right um it's still the quickest way to find certain categories of vulnerabilities yeah, but due to these distributed complex systems that are just there's only so much cognitively the human mind can really uh, do and keep track of. And I think what I what I'm realizing is there's there's a, a another set of types of vulnerabilities we're going to be dealing with for the next five ten years that are going to be they're going to require more focus on the fuzzing. Um, you need both is what I'm trying to say. You need both secure code review and fuzzing. But I think that there will be, uh, you're going to miss a big slice uh, of your possible security vulnerability surface. If you stick to just source code review, which is weird coming from the guys that do courses on source code review saying that I'm sure, but I think it's a realization that, um, or an epiphany or whatever that I've come to, as you understand lately. Well, well, yeah, it's just one aspect of the security space right and your security s you know sdlc that yes secure code reviews and we still see weaknesses there right like a lot of mm -hmm. organizations um still consider you know semgrep or i, I mean and i shouldn't bag on semgrep because it does awesome right but they they consider static analyzers to be a source code review when it's not we know that it's not no. and we know that it misses classes of vulnerabilities and so yeah you're, you're absolutely right but i i i know from my you know, in my career that I've never considered secure code review to be the end all be all, right? It's just always been this weakness that we've had as an industry that, that people aren't, well, people aren't trained in it, but people don't just don't do it because it's hard. Um, so I've always thought tooling lives, tooling is best lived in um, either, uh, well, a couple places local development built into a local developer's tooling. Like if it flags in the IDE, that's great. Uh, that was an original approach that a lot of companies took. I think, uh, what was the name of that company who got bought out? Uh, John Stevens worked there. Um, Sigital, Sigital got bought out. But they had a product that was, they were trying to do that. And they were trying to put some like 
tutorial training stuff into the IDE. So that's one approach. The other approach is at the CI CD pipeline at the build time running tests, both unit tests, fuzzing, whatever you want to run. That's been a traditional way of doing it. Um, consultants or even internal folks like me, we will run tooling as a backup just to make sure there's nothing glaringly obvious that we've missed. Uh, just honestly, just to keep track. Cause like, like uh, it's easier to run a tools rule sets than like individually organize and keep track of all your rule sets for each individual language and framework. And then, you know, try to run those uh, and, and try to just make sure that you got comprehensive coverage. This is easier, honestly, to just have a tool that you can just run. Having, having said that, you know, and maybe there's other places that people run these tools, but the point is, is that the tools have always been sort of like the idea behind similar to a linter for developers, it's just sort of a backup. It's sort of like a point pulling out the automate, the things you can automate and that are obvious and easy. But uh, I think what you, with secure code review specifically and testing in general, uh, you, you're, you're seeing at least, and I don't know this is for, if this is for everybody, but for, for us at least it's much, much more risk focused, right? We're not trying to like, so a good example is there's a system that's yeah. built in Rust. It's huge. It's doing some very complex things and it's talking to a bunch of different systems. It had a few weeks before it was going to ship and we had time to review. Are we going to do a full code review of that entire code base? Are we going to uh, just look at that one piece that's powering this, this infrastructure um, in that short period of time? Probably not. It's not feasible. So you go with a risk-based approach and you also factor in the other systems it's talking to and what you can do there. That's all manual. You, there's not, you know, there's no automation for that. So automation's dumb. It's important to run, but it's pretty dumb. It does very specific things. And like, it's pretty much a backup and, uh, you know, a catch for the low hanging fruit. As yep. always. As always. Nothing's changed there. <laughs> <laughs> but fuzzing, I, I mean, I, I, and honestly, it'd be interesting to talk through that, right? When we get into the co code review that we're doing, um, actually running the app because I know we we always recommend it, but it might be interesting to do the same thing with that whatever code it is, right? Step through using some of the fuzzers. Um, I know like there's been interest in that in the past, especially when um, uh, Stefan was on and we were doing some of those fuzz examples on okay, you're running an app. What are the different options that are out there for actually fuzzing it, and what is it? What is a valid security test versus what is just you know I'm throwing the kitchen sink at it? Um, mm -hmm. And there's so many different approaches to that that it yeah, it, it, it's hard to answer in you know two minutes right. Um, but we'll consider that when we do our our code review, our our live code review, because um, that 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 should be fun. Yeah. I think that the, the main things are sort of just like I said, the data, the, the non-repudiation and guarantees of data from front end to back end, the caching behavior as well. How does caching occur? Are, you know, are, is there some sort of varnish or some sort of caching system sitting in between? And then the third thing being like, <clears throat> are there user controllable spots where, you know, we're making calls out to other web services, whether it's like HTTPS calls, if it's like some other, I don't know, like GRPC call or whatever it might be. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of like, and also um, any of the, like the uh, pipeline type technology as well, right? Um, yeah. You know, you, you, those, are, those are probably the biggest areas for fuzzing on distributed systems where you're going to see the most bang for your buck, I think right now, one, one person's opinion. 
Yeah. Yep. And well, it's going to be dependent on the app for sure. Right. And you know, the, the layout, but this is why you want to know as much about an application before you dig into it. Right. Um, whether that is source code review, whether it's dynamic assessment, whether it's, you know, threat modeling, you know, you've got to understand what those parameters are, what the risk profile of that application is, because that, that will target your assessment, whatever that assessment looks like. Um, anyway, Ken, I know where, I know you have got to jump today, so I don't want to push oh, you I too do. far You're on right. this. I forgot. Um, <laughs> uh, so got, time. I was talking like, about this yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I've just gotten worse and worse and worse as I get older with time. Like it's become meaning less meaningful and less meaningful over time. Anyways, thank you for, I'm glad you actually like picked up on that. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, but we will try and be back next week or no, we will be back next week. It's on my calendar. Um, join us then. Uh, there's a, there's a few items that I do want to discuss and we'll have some other topics, but as always jump into Slack uh, and help drive the conversation. There's other things. I know there's another code uh, snippet of code that got put into Slack that I want to review at some point on the show. Uh, so maybe we'll do that next week. And yeah, but otherwise, have a good week. And Ken, anything else you want to add before we call it today? So thanks for listening. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you all next week. Bye. I can't end the the broadcast. <laughs> I can't even end it. It's saying, hold on. Uh, it's Can you end it? I can't even. It won't let me end it. It says there's an error. It says there's an error. I'm seeing the same thing. I'm dead hold serious on. right now. <laughs> this is hilarious. I have, this is, this has never happened before. This is an interesting one. Hmm. I don't know what's going on.
Okay, I think I can end the broadcast now. <laughs> oh my goodness.